Greetings and welcome to another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kevin Weber. Happy New Year to everybody. I hope that your holiday season was a good one and that you guys are now in the mode of thinking about umpiring. I know it's a little ways off for most of us here in the cold weather states, but this is the time of year that meetings start happening, tests start coming out, and people start thinking about what they're going to be doing come spring and the warmer weather. In this episode, I've got a few things that might help you along with that, particularly some high school-related things. The NFHS point of emphasis for 2023 and some of their rule changes. I also talk about some shallow fly ball mechanics you might think about. Um, I'm going to talk about the strike zone and uh, what I think about some of the changes and the way people evaluate that nowadays. Uh, I've got an umpire spotlight of the great Negro League umpire Bob Motley and some assigning do's and don'ts because for me it's that time of the year that I start doing some assigning, particularly for high school stuff. My summer stuff obviously doesn't come until a little bit later in the springtime. Soon, this coming weekend anyway, I will be in Chicago for the CBUA NCAA meeting, and maybe I'll see some of you there. I know I'll be able to catch up with a few umpiring buddies and some people that I've worked some games with that uh, live in other states. If uh, you happen to be there, um, you know, there's ways to contact me. Just contact me, and uh, maybe we can talk for a few minutes or something if that's something you're interested in. I'll be there Friday evening through Sunday morning. Uh, Otherwise, I hope things are going great for you guys and sit back and listen to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. So, of course, as you might expect, for 2023, The NFHS has some points of emphasis for high school baseball, and I'm going to cover those that uh, have been published in different, you know, um, formats here in the Referee Magazine, um, Preseason Guide, and, of course, on different websites as well. All right. And the first that they mention is sportsmanship. That's always an emphasis. They say that uh, umpires should focus on the actions of players, coaches, and other bench personnel, a positive, open line of communication between umpires and coaches ultimately results in a better game for everyone involved. Definitely true. Umpires should not, however, engage with spectators who are exhibiting unsporting behavior. Once the game begins, school administration is responsible for dealing with unruly spectators. Proactive approach by school Administration includes monitoring the behavior of spectators and intervening as needed. The spectators are using demeaning or profane language at umpires or others in the stands. Those individuals should be removed from the contest by school administration. The use of demeaning language or hate speech by students' parents and other fans must cease. High school must establish a culture that values the worth of every single person, both players on the school's team and players on the opposing team. There must be a no-tolerance policy regarding behavior that shows disrespect for another individual. So that's an emphasis for all high school sports, but certainly also in baseball. 
Another emphasis for this year is obstruction and interference, which is something that is frequently missed in high school sports. There are many nuances to both obstruction and the multi-layers of interference. Simply stated, obstruction is any act, accidental, intentional, verbal, or physical, by any fielder or member of the defensive team that hinders a runner or affects the pattern of play. Interference is very similar and addresses any act, verbal or physical, by the team at bat that impedes, hinders, or confuses any defensive fielder attempting to make a play. Coaches, umpires, and players have a role in understanding the rules related to each of these violations. Because both violations are sportsmanship-centered at their core, the penalties, which are some of the sternest in the rule code, um, are commiserate to the overarching concern regarding fair and equitable play in intercollegiate baseball. Interscholastic, sorry, baseball. <laughs> anyway, um, remember, obstruction is, you know, defense, all right? Um, basically, like an obstruction in the road, like the defense is getting in the way of, like, a runner or somebody, right? Interference is, you know, the offense and it's really just, you know, kind of common sense when you get down to it. Does the fielder have a fair shot to make a play if he's the, 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 the one that should have that opportunity? Does the runner have a fair right to, you know, uh, run to his base or be where he is? Um, and so, you know, you have to have those judgments there. One of the big changes, of course, on the next thing is jewelry. Um, this year's rule change that eliminates the prohibition against jewelry will permit players to freely wear items including um, medical alert bracelets and some religious, cultural, or tribunal adornments. However, any jewelry that contains profanity, taunting, language to intimidate, or baiting an opponent is still not allowed under various sportsmanship rules and bench and field conduct policies. Um, Rules covered also remain um, to prohibit any item that presents a danger to the player, a teammate, or an opponent. So that's, of course, going to be an un umpire judgment. They have an emphasis, uh, point of emphasis this year on the use of eye black. Eye black was originally introduced to help players reduce glare from the sun. However, the high school game is now experiencing the use of eye black that is being used as face decoration with image images and other sayings being drawn on the faces of players to try to intimidate or taunt an opponent. There are existing sportsmanship rules available to mitigate any use of eye black in any version in an inappropriate or unforgiving way. Coaches are encouraged to direct their players to use this tool in a more productive way. So um, I can't say I've necessarily noticed that too much at the high school level. I mean, it certainly can happen more at the collegiate level. All right. Uh, so those are the big points of emphasis for 2023. Um, nothing too huge. I guess the biggest change that we have is that jewelry is um, more allowed, uh, you know, in the game now. Which personally, I can't say I've ever seen somebody that maybe was, you know, wearing a necklace or something like that and something happened to them in a baseball game where it was allowed. Watching professional baseball, a lot of those players were jewelry, some very big adornments, and I've never seen it affect a play. I'm not saying it can't,
like it's not something that's very common. So I, I don't think it's a bad rule change for sure. Um, and it's one less thing we got to, you know, babysit uh, from the, from, you know, the field here about if somebody's got a necklace on or they got some bracelet on or they've got, you know, an earring in or something like that. Some umpires, they seem like that was their number one priority is to, you know, be the, the jewelry police or something. Um, I never found myself wanting to do that. I'd rather try to get my calls right on the field than do that. So personally, I'm glad that I don't have to worry about it so much anymore because um, I, I never was really looking for it to begin with, all right? Nonetheless, make sure you're familiar if you are a high school umpire with the new points of emphasis for 2023. For 2023, we have some rule changes for high school baseball. The NFHS had a, a rules meeting and made a few changes. Um, one of them is on player equipment. Of course, the longstanding um, prohibition of jewelry uh, being worn by players, except for religious or medical medals, um, has been significantly altered now. So the rule now states that all jewelry, including religious and med medical medals, is permitted and that said medals no longer must be taped and worn under the uniform. However, a provision does remain that any jewelry an umpire believes poses harm or injury to the wearer or an opponent uh, shall be immediately removed. So that's um, a judgment call there. So the new language for the rule, which is 331D, now simply states that no coach, player, substitute, attendant, or bench personnel shall wear bandanas. All mentions of jewelry have been stricken from the rule. So I guess we're going to have the bandana police now, not the jewelry police. Anyway, so the rationale for this is that, you know, um, there hasn't been any substantiated sports medicine data that uh, supports the pro um, prohibiting jewelry and such. I would agree with that. Another major change is uh, for rules 611, 612, and 613 for pitching. All three rule articles related to pitching positions now include new language that spells out whether a pitcher is legally in the windup or set position based on the position of the pivot foot only when the pitcher engages the pitcher's plate. This is similar to the collegiate rule. The pitcher will be considered to be in the set position when their pivot foot is in contact with or directly in front of and parallel to the pitcher's plate. The pitcher will be considered to be in the wind-up position when their pivot foot is in contact with the pitcher's plate and not parallel to it. So no longer will umpires need to enforce penalties against pitchers for using the hybrid pitching stance uh, since that uh, the combined elements of the wind-up and supposition you know, that we used to try to look for um, because now it's all based on the, the non-pivot and pivot foot kind of situation here. Uh, so the pitcher is either in the windup um, based on their feet or they're in the supposition. And, you know, whatever balk rules are dictated from that position is what you will enforce. The rationale for the rule change is that with the evolution of pitching styles at the high school level, using only the pivot foot to determine whether the pitcher is in the windup or the set makes it clean and easily discernible for all involved. All right? So... 
parallel or not parallel, that's what it is. Now, one of the other things that they um, implemented was um, for player equipment, um, which is rule 154. In its ongoing quest, it keeps unsafe um, aftermarket equipment out of the game. The NFHS clarified its rule regarding the catcher's helmet and mask combination to state that not only must it meet the NOCSAE standard at the time of manufacture, but that eye shields that are not designed for baseball should not be attached to the catcher's mask after manufacture. Any eye shields attached at the time of manufacture must be constructed of a molded, rigid material and be clear without the presence of any tint. Tinted eyewear worn on the face and under the face mask is permitted, though. Just not part of the helmet. The rationale for the rule change is the increase in catchers attaching aftermarket eye shields that are not manufactured for baseball to their face masks that are tinted and not approved by the original manufacturer. Also, tinted eye shields are problematic as one would prevent a medical professional from accessing the eyes of the catcher to determine their condition, you know, if they've got dilation or something like that. So that's the change. Now, how well we, we umpires know whether it's manufactured or not, I, I don't know. That's going to be tricky, but uh, we'll do the best we can, I guess. And then finally, they added some new official signals, okay? The committee approved eight signals to be used pre-pitch between umpires to demonstrate situations, uh, situational changes and their explanations and eight additional signals to demonstrate calls during a play and their results. And uh, some of these are common, okay, um, like, you know, pointing to the pitcher for play or holding, you know, the stop sign up for do not pitch and things like that. But one of the ones they did add is uh, rotation, where you have your thumbs and your pinky fingers extended and your arms down to your side, and then you rotate your hands for rotation, okay? And then um, the stay at home, both arms and index fingers straight down at your sides for saying that you're staying at home rather than maybe one hand or something, I guess. Anyway, that's interesting, and we'll see if people are using those. It's good to have standardized signals, I think, uh, so that as you work for, with partner to partner, you can um, all be on the same page, right? So those are some of the uh, major rule changes for this upcoming 2023 high school season. talk for a few minutes about a two-man mechanic uh, for a situation that happens more often than we might think. It's when uh, nobody is on base and uh, of course you one is in the A position and we have a shallow fly or pop-up right on his position or her position um, right behind first base. In this situation we have um, lots of people in that area. I mean, we're going to eventually have a runner coming down there. Um, we have a first base coach there uh, who should be out of the way. But we have a first baseman, a second baseman, and potentially a right fielder all converging on that, that uh, fly ball, that shallow fly ball. And, of course, the fair foul responsibility and catch-no-catch -catch responsibility is you ones, but you feel like you've got everything coming down on you, and uh, it's a tricky situation. So this is a situation where you really need to, 
to add this into your pregame. If this situation does occur, you got to get out of the area if you're U1. You should be coming in and cutting in toward the cutout um, and relinquishing the fair foul catch-no-catch to your plate umpire who should be coming up the line to potentially help out with something. I mean, that's where he should be or in case you do vacate the area and give it to him. Obviously, any kind of signal or verbal communication would be uh, very good, but really the signal is that you're cutting in and he is going to, he or she is going to have to take that fair foul catch, no catch, which shouldn't be a problem because he um, should be able to get up, you know, at least to the 45 or maybe a little past. And if this is a ball that's barely off of the infield dirt, um, he should be able to see the fair foul catch, no catch without much of a problem. I mean, we have that anyway when we have a ball far down the line and the U1 comes in to, you know, take the play at second base. So this is something that we need to talk about and add to our our pregame meetings uh, with each other and uh, make sure that we have that because you'll look like a million bucks if you, if you get it right. And um, this also is a good mechanic uh, because we allow that you want to get ahead of the of the batter runner in case he's going to try to get the second base for a double if the ball falls fair and nobody catches it, which is, you know, something that does happen more often than not there. All right. So something to think about uh, in the preseason guide from Referee Magazine, they have um, a little article about that and a little uh, mechanic gram um, picture that talks about it as well. So that's something you can look up if you want. But I've had that before, and the first time I encountered this was uh, from a now former minor league umpire who um, talked about that mechanic. Um, I, I'm sure he learned it in the minor leagues as well, and um, we talked about it before, and now that is something that is uh, something I talked to my partners about before any game I'm working that is um, a two-man mechanics game. So keep those in mind and add that to your mechanics toolbox for two-man for 2023. I'd like to do an umpire spotlight, and this time it is on Bob Motley, Negro League and Minor League umpire, uh, who lived from... March 1923 until September 2017. He was uh, one of the last Negro League umpires, uh, you know, that was living at the time of his death. And um, he was known as Bob Motley. His first name was Robert, born in Alabama to sharecroppers and uh, had a, you know, a challenging childhood uh, growing up in the Deep South. And he served in the Second World War, honorably in the Marine Corps, um, enlisted in 1943. Um, unbeknownst to him at the time, he was uh, making history becoming one of the country's first black Marines, known as the Monford Point Marines. Battled in the South Pacific, um, you know, Saipan, Okinawa, Guam, those areas as well. During a hard-fought battle on the island of Okinawa, he suffered a gunshot to the foot and ended up in the military hospital. And while recovering, fate intervened, and Motley, Motley would discover that his uh, near-death injury led him to discover what would become a lifelong passion, umpiring. 
So hearing a pickup baseball game was being played by distressed soldiers near the unit hospital, a wounded Motley hobbled over to the makeshift field and volunteered to umpire. And he had never umpired before. Um, calling balls and strikes was a natural fit, though, for him and the healing soldiers. Uh, he was honorably discharged in February of 1946 and got a Purple Heart. And he moved to Kansas City, Missouri, which would be the place he would call home for over 70 years. Landed a job at the General Motors assembly plant there, um, and he worked there for 37 years. But starting in 1947, Motley began his journey umpiring in the Negro Leagues. He quickly developed a unique and animated style unlike any other umpire. Bob's trademark included jumping high into the air to call a runner out on a close play and doing the splits low to the ground with his arms stretched wide open to signal a safe call. He made sure his bellow of you're out and safe were loud enough for everyone in the stadium to hear. Loved by the entertained crowd, Bob worked his way up through the ranks, ultimately becoming chief umpire in the league. For a decade, Motley umpired games with legendary black ballplayers, including Satchel Paige, Hilton Smith, Willie Mays, Goose Tatum, Ernie Banks, Buck O'Neill, Hank Aaron, and the man he says was the greatest African-American ballplayer at the time, Hall of Famer Willard Brown. A career highlight was umpiring three Negro League East-West All-Star games at Chicago's Comiskey Park. In 51, uh, he got married and they'd had a couple children, uh, but he continued to follow his passion for umpiring, often getting a leave of absence from his job to go on the road with various Negro League teams. In 1957, he would continue to hone his umpiring craft by enrolling at the Al Summers Umpire School in Daytona Beach, Florida. One of the first three African-Americans to attend the school, Molly graduated top of his class two years in a row. In August of 58, he accepted the position in the Pacific Coast League, AAA level, one tier below the majors. It was the first time in history that any umpire, black or white, had gone directly from umpire school into a high-ranking level uh, in professional baseball. After two seasons on the West Coast, he could see that integration into the majors was not going to come swiftly, so he opted not to renew his contract. Still not one to take no for an answer, he continually tried to break the major league color barrier for years, writing the commissioner and seeking the support of his white counterparts who had graduated beneath him in umpire school who had made it to the majors. Bob would never realize his dream for himself, but his campaign helped heighten the awareness of discrimination and paved the way for younger umpires of color who followed in his footsteps. In addition to umpiring in the Negro and Pacific Coast Leagues, Miley was a sought-after arbiter for several College World Series games through the 1970s. He also officiated semi-pro high school and college sports, including basketball and football, in and around the Kansas City area. In 2007, he uh, wrote a memoir called Ruling Over Monarchs, Giants, and Stars, True Tales of Breaking Barriers, Umpiring Baseball Legends, and Wild Adventures in the Negro Leagues with his son, Byron. Later that year, um, Bob Motley Day was declared in his adopted hometown of Kansas City. In June 2009, he was honored in his birth state of Alabama with a dedication or an induction sorry, into the Calhoun County Sports Hall of Fame. Uh, Bob was a founding member of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City, which is a great museum. Check it out if you're ever there. And the top season ticket seller for the Kansas City Royals Baseball Club for um, 40 years. 
Honoring his pioneering achievement as a U.S. Marine, in 2012, Bob and approximately 400 living Montford Point Marines received the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor for their World War II service in, cel- in a celebration in Washington, D.C. And um, he, in a posthumous recognition, a lifestyle statue of Motley was added behind home plate to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Field of Legends in 2017. So Bob... Motley, the umpire spotlight for this episode, and a terrific umpire, and um, from everything I can understand, a terrific person as well. Let's talk about the strike zone for a few minutes here. Obviously, the most important thing you do as an umpire is call balls and strikes. That is how you are judged as being a quality umpire or a not-so-good umpire. We never get feedback from coaches or other umpires that say, boy, that guy was a heck of a base umpire. We should get him in some higher-level games. No, the reason that you move up is because you're good at calling balls and strikes. Usually, that is determined by the participants in the game and the other umpires and maybe an observer. But nowadays, of course, there's all kinds of technology out there that can evaluate umpires and their ability to call balls and strikes. Some of this technology is very good. Others, not so good at all. And we see that in particular on the regional major league games with their strike zone uh, box that they usually have, which we can now call, as some people are calling it, the squawk box, all right? Because each regional, um, you know, Fox Sports or whatever they might be doing, uh, each regional um, group, uh, let's say it's the Detroit or it might be the Dodgers or it might be, you know, the Rangers or whatever, uh, have a graphics person that makes that particular box. And it's very inaccurate. Uh, they had an article in Referee Magazine recently about a game between the Mets and the Cardinals. And if you look at the boxes for each of the two teams, one could have one pitch as a strike and the other as a ball. And it's the same pitch. All right? Unfortunately, many fans are looking at those boxes and evaluating an umpire 100% based on those inaccurate boxes. Um, Of course, Major League Baseball has their own system that is much more accurate and fair um, and even gives usually a two-inch leeway around the strike zone for umpires because we know the baseball is roughly that. Um, and you can you know fit that within the, uh, the scope of the strike zone. Um, and, of course, you know, there's certain umpires like Angel Hernandez that just gets dragged through the mud every time he does anything. Yeah, there are times where Mr. Hernandez brings some things upon himself, but he's not as bad an umpire as some people make him out to be. For example, if you remember last April, he had a bad game um, in which there was a particular pitch called. And the next day in the media, they're saying that he only scored an 85% accuracy on his ball strikes, whereas Major League Baseball had 96%. I guess the big thing is, and I hope it happens at some time soon, is that these regional sports broadcasters uh, that are connected to Major League Baseball and everything else – 
and even if they're doing higher level college baseball that have the the box and such things on on television will connect it to the actual grading system that is used for the umpires. And we know that high-level college baseball is moving toward that as well. Um, we certainly don't have that in high school level and below, but people are videoing things all the time, and um, their judgments on you as a high school umpire or even a youth-level umpire are based on what they see on television. And so if we can get things more accurate... On television, I think that'll help everybody down below them, all right? Because truly, the umpiring is the best it's ever been in the history of baseball. However, the complaining with things on social media and the way that it's depicted on television is the worst it's ever been, though it's been pretty bad at times, all right? I mean, we always have people criticizing the umpires, you know, the whole kill the umpire type of thing or something like that. So I'm hoping that maybe the technology that is out there will catch up to the broadcasters and things maybe in the future will get a little bit better. Nonetheless, I think it's our duty as umpires. And obviously, if you're listening to this broadcast, you're an umpire or you're really into baseball one way or the other, to understand that what we see on television on the broadcast is not accurate most of the time. And we need to inform others that want to criticize that they are misinformed and uh, that they don't necessarily understand the strike zone very well. Everybody thinks they do. They see that box, and we know it's not a box that we're looking at. And there's no box there when you're calling balls and strikes. And it's really more of a cylinder type of thing or uh, a multidimensional box, if you want to look at it that way, that you're really calling a strike from, right? Um, and it varies from hitter to hitter, right? Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve do not have the same strike zone. And I don't think that they switch those things up very well uh, during broadcasts to, um, to help out the viewer and also make it more accurate for how we might judge the umpires. So I guess that's my little soapbox rant for this episode um, it always does bother me a bit when I see those things and I see things on on social media where an umpire is being uh, bashed. And uh, we as fellow umpires have to do our best to um, give the benefit of the doubt to our brethren and to um, make sure we defend them if that is needed. Because really, from top down, it helps everybody if you're able to do that. It's that time of year again for me to start doing my assigning. Some of you might not uh, realize that I'm also an assigner and take on that hat along with my umpiring of college and high school and youth baseball. But I do um, help assign high school baseball and I assign youth baseball. And I hope in the future maybe I'll get a chance to assign some collegiate baseball. Um, that's something that some are trying to groom me a little bit to do, and, and hopefully I'll get that opportunity sometime in probably the distant future, but we'll see how it goes. Overall, I like doing the assigning, though there are times it's very stressful, and uh, there are some things that umpires can do to help alleviate the stress of their assigners. So I want to talk about a few of those things. 
and also some of them that came up in our recent kickoff meeting for our local high school baseball association, baseball and softball association. Um, there are some, you know, questions that umpires will have. I think there's some like misconceptions out there. Like, do you get uh, any, you know, problems from athletic directors and athletic departments about particular umpires that they don't want back and everything? I'm sure that that does happen. Um, but at this time, we don't really get that because it's hard to even fill the games most of the time. We usually don't have enough umpires to fill all of our assignments, and schools know that, and they know that the last thing that they can do is say, I don't want this and that umpire, and then they're not going to have any umpires for their games, okay? So we don't really have that problem so much. I know that that can be more of an individualized thing and certainly can happen, uh, but we don't really have that issue. Also, there are other assigners in our area, like, for example, and, and I'm sure this is similar to what might happen in other parts of the country or also other parts of the world, but definitely here in the United States. We're the bigger group, okay, here in this the OK conference, we call it. We assign around you know nearly 40 schools, but there are some other assigners that might assign 10 schools, 15 schools, 20 schools in the same general West Michigan area. And some people get their um, games and everything into Arbiter. We all use Arbiter Sports and uh, start assigning earlier. And then you might be an umpire that lives closer to certain spots, but a little farther away to others for high school baseball here. And they offer you a game and you got to decide if you got to de- accept it or decline it, but you'd rather have another game, but they haven't done their assigning yet. Anyway, they talk about all this stuff. And of course, you have to, here in the state of Michigan, um, be a part of one association. And you would hope that the association that you pay your dues to is going to give you the majority of your games, and they're not going to give those games to other people. So we have people asking, hey, are you giving games to people from other associations to our association? Not usually, and certainly not recently in the last couple, three years or so, because, again, we don't have enough guys to fill all the games. If you want to work high school baseball here in Michigan, and I bet you this is the case in in Oklahoma or in Wyoming or in North Carolina too, you can get a lot of games. It doesn't mean you're going to get the primo games always, or maybe you're going to work a full varsity schedule. But man, if you want to work 30, 40, 50 games in the spring, you can do it, all right? Because there's enough out there and there's not enough guys at this point. I certainly hope in the future, and I'm sure it will, it's an ebb and flow thing. I'm sure sure it will kind of go back in a positive direction where we have enough guys. Um, because, you know, there are times where there are people that are in positions or at the working games that may, maybe it's a little over their head at the, at the moment, and that certainly can cause problems. There certainly are guys that, uh, and, and gals too, but, you know, I would say that, um, that don't take care of business like they should. They don't block dates. They'll come up with some excuse to turn back a game and call you up and, and say something. Um, they don't um, reply or, you know, accept or decline a game in a timely manner, all right? Usually there's whatever system, and most people use Arbiter, it, it gives you so many days to do it, and it just sits there for like 
a week or two or three or more. And it's like, what are you going to do? Decline it or accept it so that me as the assigner and your assigner, the same thing here, can move on to plan B if you're not going to take it. Um, otherwise, we're just like in limbo. Um, usually, though, if you were doing that when we have good numbers of umpires, then the next time an assignment comes, you might not get offered that assignment. If you keep turning back games or declining games, you might not get offered other games because people don't want to waste their time with you doing that kind of stuff. But unfortunately, right now, we don't have enough umpires that you can always do that because maybe you have to offer this guy a game again because there's really nobody else to offer the game to. Um, and I that that bothers me because um, the, the people that do things that they should be doing are not rewarded uh, for taking care of business and making sure that their assigner's job is as easy as possible so that, you know, games can be, you know, dished out in the proper manner and those that do the things the right way. Because there's more to umpiring than just all the balls and strikes and safe outs and all that kind of stuff. Certainly that is the most important thing. But the other important things is, you know, how you uh, communicate with your partners and how you communicate with your assigners um, and being professional about things and uh, being a good team player. Those are things that do move you forward, okay? Now, if you're trash on the field, I don't care if you take care of all that stuff, you know, you're not going to move very far because you just need to be a better umpire. But if you're a good umpire, you don't have to be the best, just, you know, above average umpire, and you take care of business and you're professional and you handle stuff and you communicate well, you can go a long way, a lot farther than the guy that's more of a hot shot on the field that thinks he's all this and that and doesn't take care of business. So as I, you know, start doing my assigning and I do a lot of the sub varsity assigning and help out with the varsity, I get guys that like, Oh, I just work varsity games. Um, I don't want to accept that game. You know, I, I try to, I might try to get a more veteran guy paired up with a newer person so that, you know, they might be able to mentor them a little bit, learn a little bit from them. That's always difficult when I get guys that don't want to do that. So don't be that guy out there. I mean, I'm not saying you got to take all these sub-varsity games if you are more of a varsity person. But, you know, do what you can and give back a little bit because think when you were just starting out, it would be great if you were able to work with a few um, more experienced guys that could help you a little bit. And that's also the thing we need to do because that will keep people in the game. I mean, if we can keep people for two or three years then, you know, they might be with us for 10 or, you know, until maybe health reasons or job reasons, you know, takes them out of umpiring rather than I feel like nobody's there for me. We don't want people to feel that way. And so we need everybody together to try to, to do that and make that happen for our newer people that are coming in because it's tough. We know that uh, anybody that's been doing this, you know, that it's a struggle the first couple of years that you're doing it. All right. Maybe the first three or four. So that's one thing. The other thing that we always are talking about every year and whatever system you use to get assigned games to you is to make sure you update your calendar and your schedule. Blocks. If you have certain days you can't work, make sure you block them so you don't get offered a game and then you have to decline it and explain all that kind of stuff. Make sure you update that as the season goes on because sometimes things change. Um, make sure all the information on your 
um, assigning platform is accurate. You know, we like it when people have a profile picture on there. Certainly you need a phone number. Guys have to call you or text you and figure out what's going on if they're your partner. And if you don't have the information on there, that's, you know, that's troublesome and difficult. Email is not always the most effective way to do it, but some people do it that way as well. And um, make sure that you, you know, do all your, your testing and all your other prerequisites that your state association might require you to do so that if there are postseason opportunities, you have a chance to maybe get some of them. Because there's nothing that makes me feel better than when a guy is able to move up, you know, uh, here in Michigan, we first start in the state tournament with districts, you know, and I help assign those because that's more of a local association thing. But then past districts is all from the state, and it's great when somebody is able to get um, a state assignment and then move on from there. So those are a few things I wanted to mention to you about assigning as I start to do that this season. Well, there we have it. Another episode in the books. Thank you for joining me. I am trying to get some podcasts out in a more timely manner, at least one a month. And I know I did one in December, so I'm going to start out the new year by doing things the right way and getting one out here early on. Uh, I plan to be in Chicago, as I mentioned in the in the opening. And uh, maybe if I get a chance, I will do some mini podcasts from Chicago. I'll be staying there at the Weston Hotel where the uh, CBOA NCAA uh, meeting is taking place. And I'll be there all day on Saturday because I'm lucky enough to have gotten some good assignments and I have certain meetings that I have to attend throughout the entire day, um, some of the D1 meetings. Um, but I also will be there for the D2, D3 meetings and of course the general meeting as well. So should be fun. Um, I always look forward to it. This year's a little bit different because I'll be going by myself. Frequently in the past, my wife and daughter had come along with me and stayed at the hotel and went into Chicago and did some fun stuff while I was at the meetings. But my daughter is a senior this year in high school, and uh, she has some other obligations that she would have rather partake in on the weekend. And so my wife was not very interested in coming by herself and uh, having me just be in meetings all day. So nonetheless, I will be going by myself. But that's okay because it will give me some other opportunities to catch up with some of my uh, umpiring colleagues that I don't get to see very often. Nonetheless, you guys need to start thinking about baseball and umpiring a little bit here in these winter months, checking your equipment, trying to see where there might be some winter clinics that happen, which there are some around, uh, contacting your local high schools or other areas and seeing if you can go in and see some balls and strikes once they start doing some things, which they do do that stuff. Um, you know, they can have just a certain number of players in there and pitchers and catchers. And uh, I'm sure that they would be happy to have you come in and look at some balls and strikes, uh, particularly if you're a newer person. It's always a great thing to do. I know we have our clinics here for our high school umpires and I help partake in those. But also, I like to get back there sometimes and see some pitches as well. If you're a college umpire, the uh, colleges in your area usually do that stuff as well. So, you know, reach out to some of those head coaches or assistant coaches that you might know and see what's going on and uh, take those opportunities. You know, even if you just go in, you call some balls and strikes, it really goes a long way with those coaches, high school coaches or college coaches that 
you're putting in that extra effort and uh, they're not sitting there necessarily evaluating you. They might be a little bit, so keep that in mind. But when they have you in an actual game in the springtime, they know that you're the kind of person that puts in a good effort. So that can go a long way, those kind of things. Nonetheless, keep things working for yourself and uh, keep yourself in shape and do all the things that you need to do to be ready for when the first pitches are finally going to get thrown. Until then, keep calling strikes.